close call with death. Have you had one? I have. I've had a lot of them, but who's counting? In this session, we'll talk about the events of those of us that have come dangerously close to death and had the great luck or destiny to elude death and carry on. Enjoy the show. Mark Haley, sports car, drag car, racing enthusiast who one night found himself changed forever as his race car became engulfed in flames, nearly taking his life and left him with immense scarring from burns over his body and losing his left hand and most of his right that held the steering wheel on fire. Mark shares his story of his race gone terribly wrong, ending in a ball of flames in Arizona one night, meant for fun and pure energetic entertainment. Listen in on how this event changed the rest of Mark's life, and how he has taken advantage of what life he has left ahead of him. Thanks, Mark, for being on the show. So we're sitting here tonight um, to just talk about this, this incident. I want to thank you, Mark, for being on the show. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. You bet. It, it, um, I wanted to start out with, tell me a little bit about yourself, a little bit of background, you know, you, your family situation, um, who you are, where you live, and um, so that the listeners will have an idea who's sitting in front of me. All right. Well, my name's Mark Haley, as it had already been established, and I, I was born in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I lived there till I was about 16 moved to uh, northern Utah. I live in the uh, Bountiful area now. And the most important thing you need to know about me is I love, love, love old cars and hot rods. I grew up wrenching on old cars with my dad. Uh, my brothers and sister and I all do it. Uh, my sister ended up marrying a guy that she met through her love of cars. And it's just, it runs deep in our family. Nice. Always has since you Always were little. So my very first memory of it for, Riding in a car is my dad's 56 Chevy that was his daily driver in the mid 70s when I was a toddler. And we had the 67 Chevy for a while. And there's the 50 Chevy and the 55 Chevy and the 40 Dodge and the other 40 Dodge. And just <laughs> great goes cars. on and on. Yeah. My uh, my family has been famous for uh, like a 57 Chevy. Um, and I was born in 57. So a 57 Chevy was like epic in our mm -hmm. family. And a brother that drove a 67 GTO. Okay. So, uh, kind of a muscle car and yep. fun. 67 is a good year for GM. Those are pretty cars. Oh, yeah. It was red with white interior. Beautiful. Very nice. Well, um, it, it's your um, living here. Do you Are you married, have kids, or, or what's the situation there? I was married, uh, recently not, and uh, we have five kids, and I've still got the youngest one. He's 16. He's at home. Nice. Okay. Fantastic. And uh, it is a boy? Yes. And share the same kind of interest you do in, in not uh, really. hot rods? Or not no? really. I mean, when he's turned about 14 and a half, okay, let me back up. When he was really little and I was building the car that I eventually wrecked in, that he would be out in the garage with me. And he's, you know, four or five, six years old at the time. And he, if I was out in the garage, he wanted to be out there with me. And I loved all that. And then he uh, lost interest in it. But about mm. 14 and a half, when he was coming up on getting his driver's license, he started to get a little more interested in in cars and how things work and mm -hmm. and now he just he takes care of his own cars so it worked in that part of it it's pretty good you guys are mechanically inclined you're able to fix yeah, things yeah well and i one thing i didn't mention before now is i didn't wrench on cars professionally i actually did cabinets and finished carpentry mm. i did that for 30 years before my body changed and we always had 
just stuff in the house because guys, mechanical guys tend to collect stuff. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, my, when my kids were doing, uh, seventh grade science projects and whatever else and i'd help them build whatever their simple machine project was and then they would go to school do their presentation come back and they would tell me about how kind of lackluster the other kids' projects were and it come to find out that they didn't know that not every dad had all plastic and plywood and and tools and spray paint and that's just stuff that was in my garage all the time just because they became very thankful that their dad was the kind of dad that you were so that you did have all the tools necessary to be able to I, do cool things. Yeah, I hope they did. That's awesome. Well, I appreciate you being on the show, and I um, heard about you from Matt Blanchard, mm-hmm. uh, who we recently had on the show that had a head-on collision in his vehicle and rendered him um, uh, paralyzed from waist down. And he's just so full of personality. He's just large in life. And when he said, I needed to talk to you, um, and, I, and I heard your story, I thought, oh my gosh, I, I really just hope you will come and talk to me and, and share your story with the listeners. So thank you for doing that. Um, in, in, in front of me, I mean, you, you drove here tonight, you got out of a pickup, and um, you have sustained some, some injuries from your accident. Let's t- kind of talk about leading up to it. Talk about the dragster hot rod vehicle that, you're, that you built. Talk about that um, how you built it, what it was, and then we'll get into the actual incident that, that, um, hurt you. Sure. So the car that I built was a 1926 Ford Roadster. It was a reproduction fiberglass body. It's what I started with. I built all of the floor and all the bracing inside of it. The frame was 20 feet of two by four steel that I got from a steel place and I fabricated the frame out of that. I rebuilt the engine. I designed and built the rear suspension. The front suspension was a mix of reproduction and some antique original Ford parts that I modified to fit. When people say that they built a car, what they usually mean is Ford or Chevy built the car and Mm -hmm. I did some work on it, but I built that car. You built it from the ground Mm -hmm. up. That's so amazing. How long did it take you to build this thing? From the day that I got the fiberglass body it was of uh, the dates on the photograph but i don't remember it now but and then it was about five years later on memorial weekend my wife at the time heard a vroom vroom from the garage and she thought oh i know what we're doing today and that was the first time the car moved under its own power so it was about five years interesting how many horsepower does that thing have well i never put it on a dyno so i don't know that precisely and i I'd hate to guess because I'm a little more scientific than that, but it did have a Chevrolet 350 cubic inch engine and it had a small supercharger on it. And the car weighed about 2000 pounds with me sitting in it. And when the local drag strip was open here in the Salt Lake city area, I used to run it out there and it would run 11 and a half second ETs at 123 miles an hour. It would do that all day long. So, uh, To give a little context to the listeners, you think of like a newer Mustang or a newer Camaro being a pretty quick car, and they are, but uh, those in general, they're about a 13-second car, so that's from Oh my gosh, you've got two seconds off that, which is huge. Yeah, so uh, you know, in drag racing terms, a 13-second car in a quarter mile, that's a pretty quick car. 
and 11 and a half seconds, that's a pretty stout street car. Did you win a lot of drag races? If, if you if you raced another vehicle, did you win that that oftentimes when you did? Well, it, it it depended on the race too, because with the way that some bracket racing, as it's called, is set up, there's a handicap start. So if I was my 11 and a half second car was going up against a 13 second car, mm -hmm. then that 13 second car would get what's that? Uh, second and a half or two and a half yeah i'm not doing anyway it would get that much of a head start so theoretically we cross the line at the same time right and then it comes down to driver skill or driver error and yeah i, I did pretty good that's fantastic now you say that you were um you're born and raised in vegas correct and then when did you move to utah i came to utah in See, it would have been the summer of 86 when I was 16. Okay, so you've been here for quite a while. Oh, yeah, I've lived here in Utah for more than twice as long as I ever lived in Nevada. Interesting. Nice. And um, the when you wrecked this car, mm -hmm. um, then... Where was that? That was down in, in Nevada? It was in Tucson, or, Arizona. Tucson, Arizona. Yeah, the drag strip in Tucson. Okay. And did you... Do you haul it on a trailer or something to, or because you don't just drive it from Utah all the way? Did, did if you? If the weather had it? been better, I would have driven it. But uh, the, it was in January, so January's oh. in northern Utah are not not good, good. No. not good for an no, open it's car. Four wheel drive. No, no. Well, and it, no top, no windows. Right. So yeah. uh, no, I actually had a. A uh, tow bar that I had fabricated that clamped onto the front axle, and you could just pull so it. that I could flat tow it. So I attached the tow bar, removed the drive shaft, put the trailer lights on the back of it, and just pulled and like then a just trailer. Pulled the, the truck I drove here today is the truck I used to tow it to Arizona the day before the wreck. Wow! Did you get a lot of looks from people driving by at your car? Oh, <laughs> maybe, probably. I was kind of concentrating on the road, yeah, so I don't know what everybody idea. else was yeah, doing. Yeah, keep your eyes on the road. Don't don't be looking at your trailer. Mm -hmm. Car behind you. Um, so you know what? Let's let's um, lead up to the event. Um, you know that happened to you. Describe what went down um you know what what you were doing what kind of race it was and the event that unfolded sure all right so i mentioned before it would run 11 and a half seconds now in drag racing terms if your car runs either 10.00 or 10.99 seconds you've got a 10 second car and my car was so it was only a half second away from being a 10 second car mm -hmm. and i i really wanted that so the in the couple of months previous, I replaced the head gaskets on the on it because it had some internal stuff that it needed new head gaskets. I put new seals in the supercharger. I went through the carburetor to clean it up to try to get better airflow through it. I did anything I could think of to make this car a 10 second car. And I took it out to, or after I got it all back together, I took it out to a, uh, road near my house which is long and flat and straight and not very many cars on it and, yeah and i i may have done a little uh, clandestine acceleration tests on it to see what it would do and it did something that it had never done before it startled me it had it it ran good really oh yeah it no question it was it it was going to meet my goal of being a 10 second car my gosh so uh that i 
hitched it up to the truck and I went down to Arizona. I had a buddy with me in his 80 whatever it is Mustang and we were going to just go down and have a fun drag racing weekend at this event down there. And we got down there and uh, we stayed the night in a motel there in Tucson. We got up the next morning and got in line to get in the track and I, uh, you know, I tow it down there on the street tires. So while we were waiting for track to open and all that, I put on the racing slicks. I took the exhaust off of it. I got it prepped to turn it into a race car and went through tech just fine. Like it had a hundred times, well, maybe not a hundred, but dozens of times at Rocky Mountain Raceway mm-hmm. and got in line. I'm sitting at the, uh, uh, well, okay. So we get through the staging lanes and I am pretty close up we're i'm one of the like first five or six pairs of cars to go down the track for for the whole event mm-hmm. we're, we're just getting started and i remember being at the christmas tree as it's called the starting lights yeah at, at the drag racing hey, let me ask you yes. just r- really quick inject what kind of fuel do you just burn pump in this gas thing? pump gas really I mean, like f- premium. premium gas yeah premium pump gas wow well, let me ask you this too um that I like I'm going to link the video of mm-hmm. what of the incident along with the post when I put it on social media so that people can see the actual sound of your car. That thing pops and yeah. l- it sounds so loud and uh-huh. powerful. Imagine what sitting it? in it. Oh my gosh, I imagine it's do, do you it's wear hearing wonderful. protection or anything? The helmet. Yeah, just a helmet, but that's it. You hear that roar oh, and, yeah. and stuff. I what love is that. The, Mark, what is the difference between that kind of performance car and a nitro car? Night and day. I mean, if, if you've, uh, if there are any listeners out here who have ever been to an event that has a nitro burning dragster or funny car, it rattles you to your soul. I mean, it is, it thumps, it just goes through you. It is such an amazing experience just to be on the sidelines when a nitromethane car launches. Uh, oh, I, it's like a as jet as I, yeah, taking off. As I'm scrolling through my Instagram, every time I come across a reel of a nitro car just sitting there thumping away, oh, I love that so much. I, be, I can see in your eyes that you do right now. I, I, and I, I've been to one race that I, I experienced that, and when it took off, it scared the crap mm-hmm. out of me. Um, my face even distorted. Like I, I, It's like somebody slapped me in the face, and, and I sat back, and I couldn't really breathe. I could mm-hmm. feel it in my my chest like it, it was like a big bomb just went off in front of me yeah even when you feel like you're you've been told about it and you think you're mentally prepared yes. for it until you experience the launch of a nitro car it's it's indescribable oh. you just have to experience it well i just lit up some adrenaline in you right now mm-hmm. i can just tell okay back to your car okay it so burns. my car not nearly that powerful but, but still, still loud and so pops. fun yeah and it's just super cool yeah hey. well the very first drag race i ever ever went in was i had a a uh, little S10 truck that I had swapped a V8 into and it would run yeah it's like 14s it was not fast but man when you're behind the wheel and you're on the strip and you're just going off it may as well have been a fast car because yeah. it's just as much of a rush oh that's awesome mm-hmm. you're gonna you're gonna get some people that are listening to this or you know get into going and watching this type of event or maybe even you know aspire to have a ride in a car like that and mm-hmm. drive one but but anyway back to the Christmas tree yes. and you're ready to roll. So I'm sitting at the Christmas tree, the yellow lights count down. 
I, and I'm in first gear. It's an automatic transmission, but I'm going to manually shift it. And so the lights go, I take off, and your listeners will see in the video if they watch it that the car that I'm lined up against, now let me back up. This isn't an actual drag race. It's time trials. Okay. So it's not, I'm not actually racing. It's just two cars going down at the same time. I'm only racing the clock, like you just said. So I, even though in the video, it shows that I'm way faster than the car next to me. I'm not actually racing that car, but at any rate, so I take off and I remember accelerating in first gear engine hits about 6,000 RPM. I slam it into second revs up. I slam it into third. And then I don't remember anything after that. You don't. Nope. I I don't remember the wreck. I don't remember the ride to the hospital. I, I don't remember any of that. Oh my gosh. Yep. Um, just, just blacked out. Do, do you think it knocked you unconscious? I know that it did. The I ta- I've talked to the track crew who helped me out that day since then, and, and they you were, a, you were unconscious. They've told me that they pulled me out. I was unconscious, so the impact must have knocked me out, and my brain, in its mercy, backed that up a couple of seconds or whatever, so and that I don't even remember the wreck. Just took that off your hard drive. Mm-hmm. You don't even know. Yep. Thank goodness. Yeah. Well, so in, in watching the video, yep. Mark. Um, the, the guy who takes the flag and starts you and says, go yeah, was looking the other direction, not looking at you guys race. He was looking the other direction. And when this big explosion happened, mm-hmm. it scared him. Yep. Like I saw him jerk and, and looked and he looked so concerned like, oh my gosh, this isn't good. Yeah. So. Yeah. So let me, I do want to explain to the viewers that Please. What, what happened, the right front tire on the car came apart. So it wasn't anything that I did wrong. With the engine. It wasn't, it wasn't anything about the car. I'm sure the car didn't want to wreck anymore if it had feelings. But, yeah. you know, how many of us have just gotten a flat tire in an inopportune time? Right. I think that maybe I take the cake on the most inopportune time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you're yeah. going over 100 miles an hour and the tire just, the, it just let go. And so it was a hard right turn and it into the wall. And then it hit that wall, bounced across the racetrack. It tripped the timing light in the other lanes. That's how far down the track it was. And when it hit the left wall, it twisted the frame to the right and it pulled the hose off the fuel pump. Oh my and that's gosh. when it started dumping gasoline and the sparks and me unconscious. So that's what started the fire. And I'm unconscious. I can't get out. I just sat there and burned until the track crew. Oh got my to gosh. Me. So if you would have been conscious, could you have just released your, your safety device oh, and absolutely. jumped out? Absolutely. That one of the things that a decent race car driver does in whatever your form of racing is, is you practice bailing out of the car. You have to pretend you are upside down and on fire, which in my case turned out to be not the upside down part, but But on fire. It was on fire. Yeah. Yeah, You, you practice undoing your belt. You, you practice with your eyes closed. You know where all the controls are. You practice with your eyes closed, turning off the key or hitting the master switch with the electrical with your eyes closed, undo your belt and get out of the car. So and you just sat there, but I was unconscious. I couldn't do any of that. Yep. Oh, so being unconscious, the car catches on fire mm-hmm. and it's just burning, uh, around the engine compart. Like did, did, was there an explosion? Or what I suspect <laughs> happened is, you know, there's the, the gasoline and the cars, I don't, the, the video shows the car, starts on fire while it's still moving Mm -hmm. and then it comes to a rest there at the track and so the the gasoline probably started in the engine bay but it's an open car no top no windows and so the fire 
or the interior is exposed to the fire. And so the interior just caught on fire oh. with me in it. Horrible. Okay, so let's talk about that. What mm-hmm. injuries did you sustain in, in as a result of that fire? So the, the because I'm on the driver's side of a car, and if you can imagine what it's like to sit in a rather tight racing seat strapped in, so my arms are fairly close together holding onto the steering wheel, and my legs are pretty close together. So the fire is off to my right a little bit where the the interior of the car is on fire. So the right side of my body is damaged more so. So my arm, my right arm is burned. And and when I say burned, I also mean skin grafted. So we'll, we can get to that later too. But uh, my right arm up to just past my shoulder, my right leg all from the ankle up to the crotch, and my left leg from the ankle, not quite all the way up to the crotch. And then there's a patch on the back of my left arm where the flames must have come around and licked that part of my arm, the back of my neck. And then in the impact, the visor popped off my helmet. So I'm still wearing my helmet, but there's a spot you can, well, you can see, the listeners can't, the, the line around my face where the visor came off and the flames got to my face. Got burned there too. So I've seen racers in the past wear kind of like a a hood that they pull Mm -hmm. over their head down and you wear a fire retardant Mm -hmm. suit and then you put on your helmet and so it only exposes your face. Did you have all that fire retardant uh, clothing on? I did not. My car wasn't quite quick enough to require it and they're a little expensive so I didn't have any of that stuff I had. I had the helmet, the you know, the helmet right. required, but uh, yeah, I didn't have any neck protection. I was wearing my jacket because you have to, in an open car, you have to wear a jacket. So it was just my regular winter mechanics jacket, blue jeans and oh. ready to go. Did just catch all that yeah. on fire? It just burned yeah. your clothes off? Yep. Oh, that sounds awful. And now as far as experiencing being on fire, you don't remember any nope, of that. Nope. I, I've told people plenty of times, I know what it's like to be a burn survivor. I don't know what it's like to be a burn patient because all of the, you know, the debriding and the surgeries and the amputations. And all, I was asleep for all of that. I don't remember any of it. <laughs> but, uh, and that brings me to another subject that we might've gotten to anyway, but I'm going to start now. Yeah. So sitting in that fire for as long as I did, the, uh, and I'm unconscious, I'm breathing that superheated air the entire time I'm in that car. And if you watch the video, it's a whole lot longer than a person should be on fire. Yeah. Yeah. So it took them a while to get out. It there. did. It did. Well, then they, I know they got to me as soon as they could, mm-hmm. but when they saw, when the emergency services saw the wreck, they were at the far end of the return road. So they had to drive a quarter mile or so just to get to me. Yeah. So, you know, it took the time that it took. And so I'm breathing all that superheat inside were burned just as badly as all of me on the outside was. Oh. So when I was in the burn unit in Phoenix, where I was treated, I was sedated for six months the entire time that I was in there just to give my chance, my lungs a chance to to heal. You know, they, they took some pretty extraordinary measures with me to encourage my lungs to heal because. So you were unconscious and asleep for six, six months. months. Oh my gosh, Mark. No, I, I'm so glad you shared that mm-hmm. with me. I had no idea. Oh, um, so during that time, 
you know, you're kind of like in a in, in, in an induced coma, right? Correct. Yeah, medic because a lot of people medically call induced that medi- coma. medically induced, but in the medical professionals call it sedated. Okay, but it's the same thing. Same thing. Did you witness anything? You know, people want to know while you were unconscious and in that state. Did you dream anything? Did you think about it? Tell me about that. Yeah. So I have what I call stories in my brain, which when to me, they were memories. They were what I was doing at the time. And I found out later that, no, that's not what actually happened. I have a memory of I was on a survivor like reality show, but there were also zombies in there. So you you had these teams that during the day they had to get their shelter up and and provide for themselves you know, food water whatever else but at night that's when the zombies came out so you had to defend your encampment from the zombies at night and maintain your encampment during the day and viewers would vote in so that people would get voted off the island and i remember i kept trying to do things to try to get voted off because I didn't want to be there anymore. But apparently there are people in the world more inept than me. So I kept, not only did I stay on, but I eventually became the leader of the camp I was in. Oh my gosh. And, and then there was a, another, you should start a new reality show oh my gosh. from this. It'd be and then exciting. There's a, another memory that I have of, uh, I remember I was in the special forces in the military for some reason, which when I woke up, I assumed I was in a VA hospital, huh. but I wasn't, but yeah. I, I was special forces in the military. And uh, one of my very favorite memories, though, is um, I've got two daughters. And the older of them, I had this memory that she had become this supermodel and had been in a few movies and was married to some sports ball celebrity. So when I saw her after I woke up, I asked her how all that was going. And she said, Dad, I'm a college student. I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, my gosh. And it seems so real to so you. so real to me. Huh. That's so incredible. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, I, and I, so I like to think my, the doctors had told my family that when somebody has been down that long on all these powerful drugs to keep them asleep, it can cause organ damage, including mm. your brain mm. being an organ. And uh, so they, you know, he could be himself. He could be a toddler. He could be a vegetable. We won't know until he wakes up and we see what he's left with. And uh, I was telling the same experience to another friend of mine, and he spit out a theory that I hadn't thought of, that all of those mental calisthenics I was doing might have been a reason why my brain survived the way it did. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it kind of kept you on your edge, and, and who wouldn't be on their edge and on the best of their game when you have to protect yourself from zombies? Are mm-hmm. you kidding me? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I was, was just thinking, um, when you woke up then, were you able to talk right away or did it take you a while to get your speech back after you woke up? I, so I was intubated at the scene of the wreck. So they actually put a plastic tube down my throat to help me breathe. And then shortly after I got out of the hospital, I had a, uh, a what well, the word just escaped me, the plastic tube installed in your throat so that you can be hooked up to a ventilator. Right. Uh, so, uh, and I was on that machine the entire time that I was asleep. And then when, once my lungs were healed enough that I was allowed to wake up, and this was six months later, and then I was put on an air ambulance and flown back to Salt Lake City. To and the then burn put, unit here? No, I was, by that time, my burn... 
my burns had healed up enough and my surgeries had been completed that I was actually discharged from the burn center. And I went to a long-term acute care facility, LTAC. And I was in that facility for two months. And for six out of those eight weeks, I was still on the ventilator because my chest muscles were just not strong enough. Yeah. You know, I had been in bed for six months. My muscles were so atrophied. I couldn't even lift my arm off the bed, let alone stand up. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. You know, just did, did everything just absolutely get uh, just atrophy and um, get weak mm -hmm. to where nothing, you were Wally. You, there no, was nothing left. I, I was a 200 pound infant. My gosh. That just blows me away. When you woke up, what was the shock factor in, in your mind when you saw the, the extent of the damages that had happened to you? What did you think when you looked at everything? I thought, what, what, you know, cause I have made my life out of working with my hands. I was a carpenter for 30 years. I restore old cars for fun. I fix things around the house. Yeah. You know, my hands were my whole identity. And now my left hand is gone. My right hand is just a palm and, and I can't hardly move. You know, what am I at this point? Right. What would, I mean, how do you handle that kind of emotion uh, uh, overload at that moment? Did you have immediately someone there? Like, was your family there um, just when you woke up? Or I remember my wife at the time, I distinctly remember this, that uh, when I was waking up and becoming coherent, I remember she was right there and uh, she said that, that she had to explain to me, You're, you were in a wreck the car's gone. You've been in the hospital a long time. You're still in Arizona. The, the kids are all still at home. They're fine. We've been fine. You've been here for quite a while, but you know, we've, we've taken care of things. We're fine. You're about to get on an airplane and go back to Utah. And she had driven to Phoenix with a friend of hers. And she explained to me that they were going to take all of my personal things out of the room, pack them up. And they were going to beeline from Phoenix to Salt Lake. And we will see you very late tonight, but we will be at your room tonight. We'll, we'll meet you there. And, uh, so just hearing her voice and, you know, the, she was so, uh, dirty and well, steady that, and, uh, you know, compassionate and soft at the same time. Yeah. So that, that was really reassuring to wake up to that. Oh my gosh. I can only imagine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you have other professional counseling or something like that to help you bridge, you know, get back into survival mode? Um, I, I spoke with the, while I was in the LTAC, I didn't, because I mean, I was still in survival mode at that time, still yeah. trying to you know, do any kind of therapy to get my strength back and range of motion and just to be able to stand on my own would have been a huge deal. So I was still in crisis mode for a while, even there. And then once I went to the rehab center, there was a, a psychologist on staff that would talk with me about things and and help me kind of sort through what my life was going to be like moving forward. What did you think, Mark, when you had a realization of what your life might look like going forward? How did that hit you? I wasn't real sure at the time. I mean, I, I didn't know how to feel. I'd never been in this situation before. I never had to think about this before. I did know that I've always figured things out and this is just one more problem to solve, but I didn't have any reference as to where to start solving. Yeah. You know, so 
yeah, it, it was a bit of a transition, but I, at the same time, I had just a super encouraging and supportive family and support system and met a few other people along the way that, uh, there, there were some peer mentors that I had met in the hospital, none of which were upper amputees like I am, but people who had gone through some really rough patches in their life and transitions, and they were living their lives now, whether they be uh, stroke or traumatic brain injury survivors or spinal cord injuries, and they were living out of a wheelchair now, or whatever their transitions were, those were friends that I had made while I was in the hospital. And then I have since become a peer mentor with them to other people that are currently in the hospital. So just knowing that they made it, well, and even before that, there's a, a woman that I know that she, when she was 16 and was at a girls camp and a tent came down on her at 16, she became a paraplegic. And since then, she's in her 40s now, but she went to college, became a mental health professional, psychologist, psychiatrist, I'm not sure, but she's got her own practice. She has her own home. She lives independently, maintains her business. And I'm laying in my bed in that LTAC unit thinking, okay, Melanie did it. I, I, I can figure this out. So when you have mentors like that, and do they just come on at shifts, certain times, do they come by just to come in and see people that are newly admitted and, and, and trying to help you out at that yeah, point? Yeah, well, and there's a lot of uh, interaction and advice from the therapist too. The, the therapist will recommend the mentors because certainly there are some patients that uh, the mentor should not see. They're just not in that place where they're going to accept a mentor. But the therapist that I was meeting with had told the mentors, you know, Mark's a good candidate for this. He could really use some encouragement. And so that's when the mentors would come in and just talk with me about what their life looked like now. How, how, um, how um, important in your recovery was that? How successful was your recovery as a result of that? Oh, I think very. You know, before I ever met the mentors at the rehab unit, I was thinking about Melanie and what she must have gone through and what she's turned her life into. And I've since talked with Melanie and told her what a huge influence she was on me, even though she didn't know it at the time. So just having some idea, some example, and then the mentors that I did meet in the rehab unit and hearing their successes, as well as, you know, their struggles. They, they, it wasn't a, an easy breezy thing for them to start with either. Right. And knowing that those struggles were real and that they can be overcome and you can still make something out of your life. Yeah. That's super encouraging. Mm. How long, so you were unconscious for six months mm -hmm. and then, um, how long was the recovery for your extent of injuries that you had? Well, my standard answer for that is the rest of my life. Yeah. But, yeah. uh, you know, so yeah, I was, well, I was in the hospital 299 days, 300 would have been too much. So <laughs> yeah, seriously, yeah. not one more day. I got to get out of here. One more day. Uh. But you know, and then even after I got home, I was still unsteady on my feet and brand new with my prosthesis and still trying to figure things out. So I was at home for not at home. I mean, I still went to the gym to continue my physical therapy and, and still trying to figure things out. But, uh, I, I discharged from the hospital in November of 2018 and I got a job in October of 2019. So I was at home for, for a year before I got a job. Mm -hmm. So 
congratulations on being able to get back into the game and get going and uh, continuing on, on continuing on with life mm-hmm. and facing what was ahead of you did you ever have a moment where you were absolutely down and depressed as a result of what was ahead of you and f- ever feel like you don't know if you have enough to to carry on you know i hate to say a little pollyannish about this but not that I can remember. I mean, certainly I had moments or days of, you know, like, what am I going to do now? And my hands are gone and, and, oh man. But something that I've said for years and years, even well before this injury is that my attitude and my blood type are the same, be positive. (laughs) And so (laughs) I've just always, and, and I've had a lot of people remark how have you come back from this so, so well? And I, I've, it's really made me think about how have I done this? And I think back and as far back as I can remember, I've just been a positive person. And I think it comes to just choices that a person makes. You wake up one morning and you, you choose to be happy. Happiness is a choice. I firmly believe that regardless of what other gets thrown at you, you can still choose to be happy. You still have to deal with the bad stuff, but you can choose to be happy while you're doing it. And then you wake up the next morning and you just choose to be happy. And the next morning and the next morning. And after you've done that for so long, becomes a habit. Exactly. It's no longer a choice. It's just you. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really think that's just, and I had that background for years and years. So when I had this thrown at me, I just, I didn't know any other way to be than to just be happy about it and try to figure it out. So Mark, what do you do when you're a mentor and you go into a room and you see somebody that's been hurt like you and they are down and then they don't know if, you know, what the future brings. They don't know how they're going to make it to tomorrow. What do you say to someone to give them encouragement and hope? Well, there isn't a standard answer for that because it certainly is an individualized thing depending on whatever that patient needs. For sure. But uh, you start off with, it does get easier. It it may not necessarily get better. I mean, I've I've said this to lots of people that it doesn't get easier. You just get better at doing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to the point where if I'm at the gas station, I'm going to get a soda and I use my hook to pull my wallet out and swipe my card and do my on the pin pad and all that. And I think I make it look pretty easy, but that's just because I've had a lot of practice at doing it. It was not easy at first. See, just tell them over time, you know what, you're going to get this. Just hang in there. And that's exactly what I tell them. You had a guest on your show a while back, Sam Matagi. Absolutely. He's actually, he's a good friend of mine now. He was actually the first amputee that I ever met while I was still in the hospital. And since then we've become really good friends. He's a great man. Oh, he's a fantastic. Yeah. Him and his brother Fatu both, also a former guest of yours. Yes. And so I actually peer mentor at two different hospitals. So I work at the Intermountain Healthcare facility where I did rehab. And I also work at the Burn Center at the University of Utah. And so Sam is also a, a mentor there. And every other year, the Burn Center does an adult river retreat. And we go floating down the Colorado River and uh, through Green, the um, Cataract Canyon and take out in Lake Powell. It's a beautiful he experience. He talked about that. Yeah. Were you there and when, when he went down? Or is well, it he's, multiple he's times done or? it several times. Okay. I, so I've been twice. And the very first time that I went, 
I just showed up at the U Burn Center as a uh, just participating in their group therapy mm -hmm. long before I was a mentor. And I found out that day that the registration for the river trip had actually closed, but there was one seat left. And if I wanted it, I could take it. And this would have been in the summer of that year. And then the river trip was coming up in September. So just a few months notice. Yeah. And most other people, well, most people who sign up, you can take a burn survivor and a caregiver, but there were enough single people that had signed up that there was only the one seat left. I wouldn't be able to bring anybody. And Brad, who Sam also mentioned yes. that, uh, I was telling him that my, I was worried about logistics of it. Cause I'd been out of the hospital for a, just a year and I didn't have a lot of practice navigating my life with my hook. And so I was worried about being able to set up my tent and pack my bag and just the nuts and bolts of the trip. And Brad told me there's going to be 29 other people there. All of them will be willing to help. Don't worry about that. And so we were out for five days. So that's five setups and five takedowns of the, of the tent. And I had 10 different teams of people helping me with that. Just everybody Incredible. would jump in and help. And Sam and Fatu were one of the teams. Really? And so I'm sitting there watching Sam with his two hooks set up the tent poles and put my tent up and Fatu's there with his one arm and he's helping it <laughs> up. And, and, I, uh -huh. and so I sat there thinking, and I distinctly remember thinking one of these days, I'm going to have 10 years of experience with my hooks and I'm going to make it look as easy as Sam is making it look right now. And so two years later, when we went out, my personal goal for it was I am going to do my own set up and take down and pack my bag. I'm going to do it all on my own. And I 99% did that. There was a, on, on the particular tents that we had, there's a flap that goes up over the window and a, a pole that goes over the flap to hold it up. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it was, it was short enough that I couldn't get it to bend enough to go into the other islet. So I had to have help on those windows, but everything else I did on my own. That's fantastic. I was pretty proud of myself. I can't even one. hardly get that stupid thing to work. Yeah. And I have two hands. So, yeah. uh, man, you, so did, I think I did all right. you did great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's just so cool. I, um, loved visiting with uh, Sam and Fatu. They're just amazing people. And, mm -hmm. and you have the same perseverance and, and bright light about you. You know, you're um, able to just hit life head on and, and get through these struggles. And um, it's just really admirable. I, I, I just, my heart goes out to you and how you've been able to handle your challenge and, uh, and carry on. I'm curious, how, Mark, are you different now than than you were the mark before this happened um is, is is there any difference in in you in the way that you see life in the way you value life in the way that um you approach this you know more of a second half of your life as a result of this so i've thought a little bit about what i might have been had i not been injured because the mark from before he was a pretty good guy and was on a good track and yeah. you know nice and kind and all that other but the mark today, I feel, is you know more understanding and more compassionate and more empathetic than I could have possibly been. Without, I mean, I've had so many people reach out and be kind to me and my family and support us through all of this. And even I mean, just last weekend, I had people come and express a, a token of kindness, and it's just so nonstop that I can't help but be just overwhelmed by 
how kind and good people are when you give them the chance to be. And so I, I think that that rubs off on me that as good and kind as I could have been had I not been hurt, I think I'm way better now. That's awesome. It's such a great way to look at it and, and uh, the way that you even see yourself. And um, we're lucky to have people like you in the world. And, uh, and I like the positive twist on this. I know there's challenges. It takes time. You don't you just heal overnight. You don't become a tent. Uh, assembler in, in, you know, in a day, it, t- it takes years sometimes. And, um, you're a living testimony, you know, that, that people can get through tough, hard things like this and still carry on and help others. And it's not you, you just taking care of yourself. It seems like, um, you, you have a true compassion for other people too. I like to think so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, as we wrap up, um, final thoughts, what would you, is there anything that comes to your mind that you want to leave our listeners with, uh, um, before we go? You know, I think it comes back to choices. That's something that I harp on quite a bit. I mentioned choices earlier and I want to come back to that. You know, you think about, uh, any of the fictional or actual heroes and villains that you might know of or can think about. And when you uh, distill it down, they have very similar backstories. They have some sort of abuse or neglect or pain or trauma, some sort of loss in their backstory. And the villain comes up to that point in his life and says, the world hurt me and I'm going to hurt it back. Mm -hmm. But the hero says, the world hurt me and I'm going to protect everybody else from being hurt like I was. Mm -hmm. It's just that one choice. And you can choose to be miserable or you can choose to stand up and keep going. You can choose to to be stubborn and hard-headed about it or you can choose to accept the help that you know you need. And I actually had one of the peer mentors who I became uh, good friends with that she said that very thing to me and it was like a light bulb going off in my head. I was fumbling with keys or just something like that. And this is when I was still pretty inexperienced with my hook. Mm -hmm. And she said, Mark, just quit being a dummy and accept the help you know you need. And it was like a light bulb went off. It's like, yeah, I I mean, because I am pretty independent and accepting help is the last option, but it is an option. And that's a, a choice that I had to realize that I could make. Oh, I love that. Uh, it's just so encouraging and enlightening to me, you know, to hear words of advice and suggestion like that. And, um, I can see that you've embraced that and, um, you're going to continue to do some really great things, you know, in, uh, this life that's, that's left ahead of you. And, uh, your second half is going to be fantastic. Mm-hmm. I can, ju- I could just tell, um, I wish you the very best of luck. And, um, I know that it isn't just luck. You make your own luck and you make your own journey and, um, the way that you touch other people and what you've learned in life, you're going to be able to mentor and teach other people. And, and for that, you know, I, I thank you greatly for you and for your service. So you're welcome. So Mark, before we go, will you just bring us up to speed on where you're at today? Like what is next? What is the second half of your life going to bring? What are you into now? these days i'm still into cars yeah, <laughs> yeah. don't give it up away. don't Can't give up on those. Away. no no so you know, I, what I, do you I, mean by that so i i told again it comes back to choices that 
you know, I did cabinets and finished carpentry for 30 years, yeah. and I am not going to be good at that now. It's certainly not good enough that somebody can pay me to do it. So I walked away from a 30-year career in that, but I can't give up cars. I just love it so much. Old cars and hot rods and race cars, and I grew up doing it, and I still love it, and I'm still going to do it. So shortly after I discharged from the hospital, I found a, a sweet deal on a 1950 DeSoto that reminded me a whole bunch of of a 47 DeSoto that my dad had years ago. So I dragged that home and it had no interior and it had no wiring and uh, hadn't run in 30 years, but it was a really great start. Okay, so so just pause, mm -hmm. DeSoto. A lot of listeners that are in the younger age group will say, what the uh -huh. heck is a DeSoto? And that's what part is of that? the reason to own a DeSoto. DeSoto Who is, makes that? It's a division of Chrysler Corporation. They built from 29, 1929 to 1962, and mine is a 1950. Wow, man. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of got rounded nose, rounded trunk or anything like mm -hmm. that? Yep. It's a pretty rounded, you know, it's a 1950 model, but it would have been designed, you know, in like the late 40s, right after World War II. So it's it's pretty much a 40s car, late 40s car. Wow. And then what kind of engine are you going to put in that baby? Uh, it still has the original. I did put dual carburetors and dual exhaust on it, but it's the original engine and an original transmission original steering, original suspension. I did swap the rear axle so that it can go freeway speeds. It's my road trip car now. And I do have disc brakes on the front and it's been lowered and new interior. So, oh my gosh. and it was in such good shape when I found it. Where'd you get it? Uh, a guy in Riverton, not, you know, here in the Salt Lake Valley had it in his garage. Oh. And he was just trying to unload it cheap because nobody wants it to Soto. So it was cheap. I'll be darned. Um, I, you know what, um, years ago, it just brings to my mind right now, um, a friend of mine that lived out in Louisiana said that in a garage out there, just out of Monroe, Louisiana, a guy had a pristine, perfectly conditioned Studebaker pickup. Mm -hmm. It was like a 1950 something Studebaker mm -hmm. pickup and I passed it up. It was going to sell for like 5,000 bucks. Oh my good gosh! Uh, wouldn't that thing be worth something? You would think if, again, it's the right buyer. If it had been a 1950 something Ford or Chevy, yeah, it'd be worth a mint. Yeah, but not that many people want a Studebaker, <laughs> which is why you can get a Desoto. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's super cool. And so you've restored it, and get, what have you redone the outside? What color nope, is nope. it? Nope, it's it's many actually. So it. It had a tiny little bit of rust around the back edge of the trunk lid, and that was the only flaw in the whole car. It was not beat up. All the trim was there. All the hard-to-find interior little parts were in boxes in the trunk. It was all there. Wow. And so uh, I, it had this just awful, like, fake vinyl spray on top on it, which I hated. So I sanded all that off and resprayed it flat white, and the car was mostly primer when I got it and I wash it with scotch Brite and dish soap and as some of the primer has come off I can tell that uh, it was turquoise originally from the factory huh. and then it was resprayed brown at some point in its life and then somebody must have been sanding on it gave up and primered the car oh. and so as I scrub the primer down sometimes brown comes through first or sometimes turquoise does sometimes bare metal does mm. So what, what color are you planning on making it? I'm leaving it the way it is. I'm just going to seal it. Really? Yep. I love it the way it looks. Huh. That's awesome. 
Well, definitely, you're going to have to um, send me a picture of it. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give you one, and if you wish, you can put it in the show notes. That would be great. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love that. So you're rebuilding cars. You have mm-hmm. a passion for cars. Mm-hmm. And uh, w- what do you do for work? Right. So I went to uh, delivery driving, and I was, and maybe I just spoiled the ending, but I'm laying in the hospital bed thinking, I can't do the one job I've done my whole life, the only thing I know how to do. What am I, what am I going to do? And I spent a year thinking, well, six months anyway, the first six months out of the hospital was get better. And then it was, okay, when I start looking for a job, what am I going to do? And I had a friend in the peer mentor program, a stroke survivor who he had taken a job as a driver. He was shuttling people back and forth between these two work campuses for this place that they were working at. And I thought driving, I can drive. I'm going to start looking for driving jobs. And I ended up taking on a delivery driver for a pharmacy. And I did that for two and a half years, just delivering uh, around the Salt Lake City area. Sometimes I'd go north as far as Logan, sometimes as far south as Payson. Anybody who looks at a map in Utah can know that's pretty long, long drive. Long ways, yeah. Yeah. And I and then that pharmacy ended up, uh, they got bought out by a bigger pharmacy and I didn't want to do that anymore. So since last August, I've been working for an auto parts place. I deliver auto parts to uh, repair shops. Wow. That's in, do you get a discount for any parts that you <laughs> if need? If only, no, be, think about it like this. We sell parts to the car, cars that are getting repaired at shops. Yeah. What kind of cars are getting repaired at shops? New ones. Newer ones. Yeah. Yeah. So we only sell, I think the, we stock cars or stock parts for cars, maybe up to 15 years old. Interesting. Anything older than that, they don't sell. Where do you find those old parts? Is it for junkyards or something? Or? So, uh, if this had been a 50 Ford or a 50 Chevy, I could build it out of a catalog. But uh, 50s Mopars, Dodge, DeSoto, Chrysler, their parts are just not reproduced. They're not popular. So I do end up having to call around to wrecking yards. There are some parts that are uh, Napa Auto Parts is a good place for old car parts. But there's a lot of stuff comes out of wrecking yards. I drove that car around for a year without a back window because I was trying to find a back. It had to be a 1950 only, DeSoto or Dodge only, coupe only window. window. And you finally and found I one? I finally found one at a wrecking yard in Minnesota. Oh, my God. And shipping it was twice as much as the cost oh, of the I car. Oh, I bet. But that's okay. At least you had your I got, back window. I got my glass. Yeah, yeah. Wow. You know what? Um, I just thought of an a idea for you, you as a, a really cool new job and uh, in addition to what you're doing would be if you could create any kind of um, mechanical part via a printer, you know, like a digital printer mm-hmm. that would that would fabricate something out of some kind of substance, you know, that's as hard as steel. If it could just reproduce a, a 3D image of that particular part like brand new it's mm-hmm. super cool you just type it in what you're looking for and boom a couple hours later there it is yeah that'd be neat be fun too futuristic but maybe it'll still come we'll, we'll see what happens yeah you come up with the the uh way to do that and all right be super rich <laughs> uh anything else um well that that's certainly not i mean i could talk cars all night <laughs> so the uh the wrecked car was so damaged that there, there wasn't hardly anything left of that. I did sell the rear axle out of it, and the engine out of that car is going into my 55 Dodge, which is going to be my next race car. Oh, that's awesome. 
Is there any part of it that you saved as a memorandum of your incident that you had? Is there anything you saved that goes, this, this is, reminds me of, of that day. The tire that came apart is up on the cabinet in my garage. Bingo. Yep. <laughs> That's awesome. Good. Don't get rid of that thing. Nope. Nope. No, no. Keeping that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're alive. I'm glad you lived to tell about this story. Happy you're on the show. Really appreciate your time, Mark. Thanks for having me. Take care, my friend. Drive safe for Pete's sake. Oh, okay. <laughs>